Good morning, church. That phrase, no turning back, it's an interesting phrase. It's one that I can't say was going through my mind the first time that I ever made a decision to uh, run in a 10-mile race. In fact, I remember as I started off distinctly in my mind thinking, can I turn back? Can I please turn back? But at that point, we were already off, and the gun had sounded, and we were racing. And you know, it's, it's interesting. In our lives, there's a pattern. Many of us have probably seen this uh, from our younger ages and maybe even today as we walk now. Uh, there's a pattern of coming to know Jesus. When Jesus draws us to himself, we begin a relationship with him, and we come to know him, and we follow, and we have this great energy, and we're excited. And, and what inevitably happens over time, the energy kind of fades and wanes, and we wait for the next big event to come, and the next big event comes, and we see this a lot. You know, when we were younger, we can think back over it. There was, there was a group of young men that, that, that grew up together with myself, and, and I remember us as a group, seven to 12 of us, going to these events and activities and coming home and, and being so fired up, but we were relying on the wrong thing, the event and the activity to motivate us and to get us excited about following Jesus and not turning back. And as we got older and, and as we grew up, it came to realize in my mind that relying on those events, relying on those activities is dangerous, friends. Because the emotions of those things so often wane, and then we're left needing more. But we've been looking at the book of John. We've been in John chapter 6, and we've been studying a chapter of John in John chapter 6, where the theme is Jesus is more than enough. He's more than enough in his person, in who he is, his identity, his very nature. And it's not about the events it's not about the activities. Those things were uh, incredible, and they were mighty, and I'm sure they were fabulous to witness. But Jesus himself is more than enough. And what we're going to see today, friends, is that there is a real cost to discipleship, to following Jesus. And when confronted with the real Jesus and called to give up their self-dependence, and to lay down their lives and grasp hold and cling to him, what we're going to see in our text today is sad. Many turn back. Many turn back. But the real disciples persevered. They hung on. They knew who Jesus was. And they believed in him. And they were saved. If you have your Bibles today... Please turn to John chapter 6. We're going to conclude this chapter today. We're at the end of John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. Next week, we're going to be uh, looking at the book of Matthew as we prepare for Easter and have our Palm Sunday. We're going to look at the account of Jesus coming in uh, to town on the, on the donkey in the book of Matthew. And the week after, we're going to, of course, be celebrating Easter. And so we'll be taking a break for a few weeks from John as we prepare for our Easter services, but we want to conclude and close out John chapter 6 this morning. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we open up your word this morning, we're confronted with the reality again that you are more than enough. And as we gather today, we acknowledge that in our world there's many distractions. We sang about that this morning, Lord. We acknowledge that, that so often... It's the things of the world that, 
that, that are front and center in our lives. And Lord, it's your word that tells us to turn our eyes upon you, to set our minds on the things above. And so, Lord, we want to follow you in obedience today. And we want to open your word and we want to set our minds on the things that your word will communicate to us. Lord, we know that you intend to use your word to change us from the inside out, Lord. To convict our hearts, to change our minds. And so, Father, as we look at this text this morning and we see that many, when confronted with who you truly were, turned back. It would be our prayer this morning that we would persevere. Lord, that your spirit would be evident in our lives and not just to our family and friends, but to our neighbors and those in the community that we walk shoulder to shoulder with every day, that we might be a testimony to the power of your grace. Your grace is not given without effect, Lord. And we're thankful for that this morning. Would you guide us through this time? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending? to where he was before. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. As we open the text this morning, there's, there's something that's very evident to me in the first five verses. We see this idea of Jesus knowing. There's something about Jesus' knowledge that's evident here. And we're going to explore that a little bit in these first five verses. But I think it's interesting that when the disciples heard what Jesus had been teaching, and remember where we were at last week, right? Eating the flesh, drinking the blood. When they heard this teaching, it shook them to their core. And they were confronted with the reality that if this is true about Jesus, if he is who he says he is, and, and he's able to provide as he says he can, then this must be true of our lives. We must follow and we must obey. And I think it's interesting here, friends, that an observation to make in this passage, right at the beginning in verse 60, they're called disciples. I mean, look down at your text at that. Many of his disciples, 
And, and we know the conclusion. We just read it at the end of the text. These are people who are going to turn away, who are going to turn back. And you know, the reality in our text, there's, there's two kinds of disciples that we're going to see today, friends. Those who are following Jesus as fans, right? They're excited about the miracles. They're excited about all of the wonders that he was able to do. And those who are following Jesus for who he truly is and who he truly said that he was. A few years ago, Kyle Eidelman, an author, wrote a book called Not a Fan. Not a Fan. And he unpacks this very concept. And those are, there are going to be some who follow Jesus' person uh, and witness, get to witness the reality of his power because they're following his person. And you know, Jesus knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knew that there were going to be some that were going to grumble. He knew there were going to be some that were going to walk away. Some of these people who were following friends were not true disciples. They were on the team just to get the jersey. That's it. Some of you might understand that analogy. You know, it's really interesting. All the students at school, they look forward to the end of the school year to get into their summer break. But there are a group of, of students, about 100 young men, who on the Monday after school ends are in the weight room at 6 o'clock in the morning. And you know what they're doing? They're training, and they're preparing, and they're getting ready. And they show up over and over and over again. And over the summer, what we find is there's a group of guys on the team that really sets themselves apart as guys that are, they're there, they're part of the team, they're committed, they're not just in it for the jersey. There's no turning back. They're all in. You'd only come at 6 o'clock in the morning on your first day of summer break if that was the case. But then there are some, they don't show up at all over the summer. They never come. Oh, and friends, let me tell you, there's grumbling during these workouts at 6 a.m. When, when, when you're on lap, when you're on your third 400 that's timed and you have to make it under a certain time, there's grumbling. When you put them on the stadium stairs and you tell them they have to go up and down and they have to do it in a certain time, there's grumbling. But they keep coming back. But you know inevitably what happens every year, there's a group of guys you don't see all summer long, and they show up in August, and they think they're ready, but they're not ready. They haven't put the time in. They're not the true members of the team. They're there just to wear a jersey. And in our text, Jesus, he knows that some of these people who had followed him, he knew their intentions. We've talked about this before. And so he responds to this grumbling with a simple question. If you look down at the text, do I offend you? Do you, do you take offense at this? And the this that Jesus is referring to is his previous teachings about himself. The disciples were offended when Jesus pressed into them about their pattern of dependence on the fathers and on themselves. They were offended about that. And Jesus was saying, you, you can't depend any longer on the fathers, lowercase f. 
Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. They died. You can't depend on them anymore. You can't depend on yourselves. Jesus was here. He's calling his disciples to a complete and utter dependence on himself. And look at this subtle reference in our text where Jesus is showing that he's equal with God. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus is essentially telling his disciples, you might be offended now by what I just said, but you may be even more offended if you are not believing when I ascend. Some were going to miss out. And friends, when Jesus ascended, where was he seated? We know in Mark chapter 16, 19, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus reminds them again, it does not depend on you. Look down at verse 63. The Spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. John chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And Jesus is reminding them that they were incapable of doing this on their own efforts. Friends, we can't do this. Jesus must do this work for us. And I've stood up here many times already in my tenure and shared that I am weak and incapable of doing what God has called me to. But the Spirit working in and through me makes me more than capable. It's His work. It's the work that He has done that we are to value. And Jesus has already confronted the wrong belief that by studying the Scriptures alone, that these men could somehow attain to eternal life. Remember John chapter 5, verse 39, when He said to them, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to Me. It wasn't the Scriptures alone and the study of the Scriptures alone that had the power to save. And there was a group of people, a group of followers that thought just by studying the law that they could have this right relationship with God. Jesus confronted that reality. But he also confronted the wrong belief that reliance on the law could lead to eternal life. This is what we looked at a few weeks ago in John chapter 6, verses 27 to 29. Do not work for the food that perishes. Friends, the food that perishes was the law. It was the manna that they had relied on, that their fathers had ate in the wilderness and died. The law was insufficient. Jesus was completely and is completely sufficient. The work of God was not to believe in and abide by the law. The work of God was to believe in the one whom he had sent. Remember that question earlier in John 6? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Friend, as we, sit, as we sit here today as disciples, those of us that are true disciples, true followers of Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Believe. Believe. That was Jesus' answer. In the one whom he sent. Belief before behavior. Right thinking before right living. The disciples who would leave, they had set their hope on the wrong foundation. Their foundation was on the study of Scripture and on the law instead of on the person of Jesus 
Christ. And friends, as we sit here today, our hope must be grounded on the person of Jesus Christ. The person who he says that he is. Look down at verse 63. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Yet he knew that there were still some who did not believe that Jesus was more than enough. And some still believed that they could find life elsewhere by following the law or by obeying some commands. But the reality, friends, is that Jesus is all we need. He's all we need. Amen. Amen. That's the reality. He is all we need. There was a... a, a, a writer, I think his name was Tully Intervision, a few years ago he came out with the saying, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything. Friends, Jesus is all we need. And he's more than sufficient. He's more than enough to meet the needs that we have every single day. The reality, friends, is that hearing many did not hear and seeing Many did not see. And in verse 64, there's this powerful, powerful parenthetical statement. And it's a statement that is regarding the omniscience of Jesus, what he knew. But it's also further evidence that Jesus indeed was God. And it's clarifying in verse 64, we're going to look at it in a second, that Jesus was walking as a sheep to the slaughter with eyes wide open. Jesus knew what was going to happen. What did he know? Look down at verse 64. This statement in verse 64 is so powerful. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And so we already knew that Jesus understood that the disciples were going to grumble about his teaching. He knew That of the many who had gathered, and think about it friends, there were thousands who had gathered. That of the many who had gathered, many would argue, would grumble, would have a hard time, and some would walk away. But he also knew from the beginning, those who would believe and who would follow. And he also knew from the beginning, the one who would betray him, who was Judas. These are the things, the realities that Jesus understood from the beginning. And because Jesus knew those things, he could teach with great clarity what he says in verse 65. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Friends, it's just further affirmation that everything in our life, our breath, our daily provision, our salvation, it all depends on God. It's a gift from God. Everything, friends. And and to see everything in our life as a gift helps us to be thankful. And that's one of the primary applications we've talked about ever since I began here. What an important characteristic of the Christian life, friends, that we live out of great thankfulness for what Jesus has done, how he's providing for us every single day. This statement in verse 65, it it serves as an exclamation mark almost on this entire chapter. Jesus is more than enough and we're to be totally dependent on him, clinging to him for everything. 
No one can come unless it is granted by the Father. And if you know Jesus, friends, be thankful because you did not come to that conclusion in and of your own mind. It's been revealed to you by God. Look at the response to this teaching in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and what does it say? No longer walked with him. They turned back and, and they no longer walked with him. And you know, I think as we, as we look at that, it gives us good occasion to explore how people receive the word. Because from John chapter 1, we know that in the beginning was the word. And the word was God. And so how did people and how do people receive the word? Keep your bulletin or finger in John chapter 6 and turn over to Luke chapter 8. How do people receive the living word of God? Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. Just at the flip back, one book, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up, and it choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew, and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things, and he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, kind of like we talked about at the beginning this morning. And in a time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Friends, at, at, at the beginning of our time together this morning, we said perhaps we have seen the way that people receive the word. We've seen all of these different ways in our lives. And as we sit here today, we may actually be able to think of names of people who we've known, maybe even today, but maybe in the past, who for a season they walked with the Lord, they received his word, they received it with joy. But then after a time of hardship, they fell away. They walked away. They turned back. The text tells us that some hear 
but are molested by the devil so that they may not believe. It says, some received the word with joy. Fair weather fans. But when the going gets tough, a difficult season comes, they fall away. And, and it talks about those who hear the gospel and receive it, but then they get distracted by the things of this world. And, and I believe this group of people who had come to follow Jesus, thousands of thousands of disciples who had come, many would have been categorized in any one of these three soils. Many. Some would get distracted. Some would lose their joy after a difficult season, difficult teaching about who Jesus was. And some would not be able to believe because the birds come and pluck the seed up before they have opportunity. But others, friends, there's one soil that perseveres. There's one soil that endures, that is good, and that is fruitful. And friends, if we sit here today and and we have a relationship with Jesus, friends, if we share that in common with one another, we should be thankful because Jesus keeps us. As I look back over the history of my life, I can think of times when I've, there was a group of us that were growing up together that at times were so passionate about Jesus. And as I look back and I see some of those faces today and where they're at, my heart is saddened by what's happened to their lives and how they've walked away from the Lord. And friends, I could tell you I could put them in any one of these three categories. But as, as I stand here today, persevering, I tell you it's only because of the effects of God's grace in my life. That's the only reason I can stand today here with you and share. By His grace. But by His grace, I may have ended up in any one of those other soils, in any other one of those situations. But He keeps me. He helps me to persevere. And friends, if we sit here today, we should be thankful That he's working that way in our lives as well as we know him and have a relationship with him. There's good soil. Those who hear, who hold fast with an honest and good heart. They bear fruit with patience. With patience. Friends, what what are we talking about today? We're talking about discipleship. And, And discipleship, it's not something that you can take an Instagram picture of. Hey, look at me. You know, snap a shot. This is my disciple. And we did this today in the coffee shop. And we, I discipled such and such. It doesn't work that way, friends. Discipleship is an investment of time over a season to bear fruit with patience. We don't always get to see the effects of how Jesus uses us in other people's lives. Jesus knew, but we don't know. We never know how Jesus might use us in somebody's life to draw someone closer to himself. And so, friends, we never know when we're talking to one of these friends who perhaps has fallen away. When we're talking to one of these friends who is perhaps at risk of falling away. We never know how Jesus might use a word of encouragement, a statement of, hey, I was praying for you. How are you doing? To help bring someone back or keep someone in relationship with him. For 11 of the 12 disciples, 11 of the 12, we know the seed had fallen on good soil. And this is evidenced by Peter's confession, speaking for the 12. Look down at verses 67 to 
to 71, back in John 6. 67 to 71, this is Peter's confession. This is how we know how the seed had fallen on good soil for 11 of the 12. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus says, Do you want to go away as well? Look at all the other people who left. I'm no longer the most popular guy here in town. Everyone's leaving. They're bailing. Do you want to bail too? You know, inevitably, friends, this, this happens. We see it in our lives. There's microcosms of this in our lives. When things don't go well, often things get difficult. Where do people go? They, a lot of times, will bail, right? Oh, the football team's going to have a great year. We're going to be 9-1. and one. We're going to go to the playoffs. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. It's going to be so exciting. Somebody gets injured. You start the season 0-3, and, and guess what happens? It's a massive exodus. People want to bail. They want to quit. They want to leave. It's hard. It's difficult. And friends, this happens in our Christian life as well. Sometimes when things get difficult and things are hard, sometimes there's folks that want to bail. And it was happening here with Jesus. So he looks at his disciples and he says, how about you? Do you want to go away as well? And Peter's response is quick. It's clear. And it's convincing. He begins with a question back to Jesus that reveals his allegiance to Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? And first, just consider that the title that Peter uses here for Jesus is Lord. Remember last week, the people were all the way back to calling Jesus what? Man. They had called him prophet. They had called him rabbi. They had called him good teacher. But last week, we saw that they called him man. Here of the true disciples, the ones who remained, Peter refers to Jesus as Lord, Master, Commander of my life. And this is significant. When he says, to whom shall we go? It's significant because the disciples truly saw Jesus as a rabbi, but more than a rabbi. And, and here's how rabbis worked back Back in this time, if you think about it, for those of you that had a favorite teacher or favorite college professor when you were in school, you had that one professor that everybody loved and everybody flocked to. And, and you remember that guy, whatever he said or she said, it was as good as gold. And you loved it. And so when I was in college, there was a professor. I love one of my favorite professors. He's passed on now, Dr. Smith. And I remember that we would just flock to hear him speak. Whenever he was speaking, whenever he was sharing, he had a group of people that would come around him. And, and he knew the scriptures so well, it was amazing to sit with him. And you would take his teaching and accept it. And back then, the disciples, they would attach themselves to a rabbi. And you have to understand, the rabbis, they have a book of teachings, and they have different interpretations of how they interpret the teaching. And so this rabbi here might interpret a specific teaching different than this rabbi over here and this rabbi over here. And so as a disciple, whichever rabbi you had attached yourself to, it was that rabbi's interpretation 
that you were sold on. You were going to go by his interpretation. And if this rabbi over here said this, or this rabbi over here said that, you had attached yourself to this rabbi, and you were buying his interpretation and going to live by it. Hook, line, and sinker. And so this is a declaration of allegiance to Jesus. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The other rabbis didn't have words of eternal life, friends. This is how we know the disciples saw Jesus as more than a rabbi. The other rabbis didn't have words of eternal life. Jesus had the words of eternal life. The bread from the other rabbis, their words could neither sustain for eternity or did they have the power to produce life. But Jesus was radically different. And there was something radically different about his words and his teaching because in his words and his teaching, there was life. There was life. And as a result of their allegiance to the person of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, Peter's conclusion is clear and resounding. Look down at verse 69. We have believed. We have believed. Friends, what must we do to be doing the work of God? Believe. And so what's Peter affirming here? We have believed. We have believed. The answer is an affirmation that indeed those who remained were prepared and already performing the works of God. Belief. Belief in Jesus. They had truly come to know and not on their own power, right? Remember John chapter 6, uh, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. They were believing. And they were believing because they had been taught by God. Peter is clear that his belief is grounded in the true and real identity of Jesus. Look at what he says. You are the Holy One of God. Set apart, eternal, life-giving from God. And there's a beautiful reflection here back to the book of Isaiah that may even direct us towards this very moment as we read Isaiah in chapter 54, verse 5. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer the God of the whole earth He is called. Friends, there is a great example here for us in this text this morning of these disciples that remained. The true disciples, they had floated their boats to the island of Jesus and upon arrival, they burned the ships and never looked back. No turning back. And, and, and friends, we know this to be true because how did these men die? They were martyred. Some of them were hung upside down on crosses. Others were stoned. They were completely convinced in their mind that Jesus was who He said that He was and He was able to do what He said He could do. There was no turning back. They would follow him. Not perfectly. We know they made mistakes. Peter made mistakes. He denied Christ. And friends, as we sit here today, 
Church, we're going to make mistakes too. I'm going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. We're not perfect. We still operate in the flesh. And so we're not going to follow perfectly. And that's why we need each other to edify one another, to build one another up, to bear one another's burdens. They would follow the rest of their days. All the way through. In verse 70, Jesus responds to this confession. There is one of the twelve who remain who would betray him, isn't there? And, and perhaps the next statement was more for the disciples than for Jesus. See, they had to know that there was one in their midst who was a devil, a pawn in his failing scheme to try to destroy the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil, is a devil. This is given both to warn the disciples, but to also show us that Jesus was aware of the situation. You know, isn't it interesting, when Judas betrays Jesus, Jesus isn't like, oh, didn't see that coming. Oh, no, this is horrible. He had warned them almost from the beginning that this was going to happen. He knew, friends, that he was going to be betrayed. And it was one of the ones who had remained with them that would betray him. So a question we ask as we come to the end of our text and as we prepare for the Easter season, I believe it's a fabulous question that we could ask. How should our lives look in light of these realities? Friends, there is no turning back. And, and I always think this time of year is a wonderful time of year to re-engage, perhaps, with friends from the past that maybe have walked away from Christ. Maybe they've walked away from the church. And friends, as, as you sit here today, perhaps there's even names in your mind of people that you know you grew up with that love the Lord and they're no longer walking with Him. They don't attend church anywhere and they have difficulties in their life and they don't know what to do and they're weighed down by anxiety and by stress and all the cares of the world are choking them. Friends, see if they can come back. Invite them to come on a Sunday with you. Invite them to come to Easter. Invite them to come to Palm Sunday. Say, hey, why don't you just come to church again? Come back to church with me. Let, let's, just go, let's just go and get back into the Word of God again and see what Jesus can do. And friends, uh, salvation is a free gift from God, but true discipleship calls us to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So sometimes there's a level of discomfort that comes with this because they might say, I don't want to go to church. I hate church. Church burned me. I'm angry at the people at church because they hurt me. They did this, this, and this. I can't even think about going back to church. But how are we going to know if we don't ask the question? How are we going to get to the real motivations and intentions if we don't ask? And so friends, I, I ask you if there's people in your lives that you know that have fallen away or they've been choked out by the cares and concerns of the world, what could Jesus do through His Word, if they came to church with you on a Sunday. You don't have to do anything but ask. When they come here, Jesus, we trust Jesus is going to do the work. He works. He uses His Word for His effects, His purposes. And so perhaps it's an invitation. 
motivated by love, compelled by Christ, maybe there's somebody in your pathway today that you're like, you know, I need to invite that person back to church. Or before you invite them to church, maybe you need to dig in a little bit more in your relationship with them and explore the reasons that they're not walking with Jesus. Hey, what used to come to Bible study? We used to read the Word together. We used to, you're not seeming to be into these things anymore. What happened? Perhaps just digging into the motivation and intentions as to why those things are no longer interesting to them would be helpful before you invite them. But friends, this is part of living in community with one another and doing life together. Jesus is drawing people. God is drawing people to Jesus. And we never know how He might use us to draw someone to Himself. A simple invitation can go an awful long way in that. And also, friends, realistically, today it's the first Sunday of every month and one of the activities that we celebrate as a body of Christ, as a family, the first Sunday of every month is communion. As we take this time each month to remember you and what your Son has done for us. It's a tangible way, Lord, that we affirm our discipleship, our true discipleship, our true desire to follow after you. As we remember corporately, as a body of Christ, what your Son did to secure our salvation so that we may have eternal life. Lord, I pray we would receive this communion today with thankful hearts, with joyful hearts, with hearts tuned towards fellowship with one another and fellowship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.